Hello, Neil Butcher here. Welcome to episode 3 of my podcast, British Food and History Lent. This is the second Sunday of Lent, and this week we're going to look at Lent in pagan times, before there was a Christian Britain, to see how much of our pagan culture is alive and well today. Coming up in the show, I interview Isabel Cass, a.k.a. Dormouse Chocolates, who is Manchester's only bean-to-bar chocolatier, to talk about chocky eggs, Easter, and the chocolate business in general. Then, I'm going to cook up some heathenous hot cross buns, but before all of that, we need to get up to speed on Pagan Lent and Easter. Last week, we looked at the history of Lent from the Christian point of view. In talking about how it got going, I mentioned that the early Christian church slotted itself into festivals and celebrations that already existed. Now, Christianity originated in a Jewish world, so it had to be slotted into the Jewish calendar too. It was easy, because Jesus and his followers were all Jewish anyway, and the Last Supper, for example, was a Passover feast, a Jewish ceremony. Passover is a movable feast, which occurs the first Sunday after the first full moon, after the vernal equinox, that's a spring equinox, which sounds very similar to how we work out Easter. Now, from this equinox... We can work out, by going backwards, all the other special days. Shrove Tuesday, Ash Wednesday, Collop Monday, everyone's favourite now. By the way, whilst we're talking about this, the days Easter Sunday can fall on can be anywhere between the 22nd of March and the 25th of April, so that's just over a month apart. We won't get an Easter as late as the 22nd of April until 2038, and we'll have to wait until 2285 before we get one on the 22nd of March. Anyway, I digress. Meanwhile, in Europe, completely oblivious to all of this, pagans everywhere celebrated the coming of spring and the equinox. No matter what type of pagan they were, they all celebrated this important time of year, and they had been doing in various different ways for thousands of years. The cold world, warming up, returning to life, obviously a reason to be happy and a reason to celebrate. It was necessary, then, to slot the story of Jesus Christ into this framework. The world dead and coming back to life, mirroring Jesus' resurrection nicely. So nothing too tenuous there. There is lots of pagan symbolism going on during Lent and Easter time, just as there is at Christmas. The Christian church had to use a pagan framework for their liturgical calendar, but it was a fine balance. They did not want any heathenous pagan hocus-pocus going on, thank you very much but they still needed to allow some pagan ways to continue if they wanted the pagans to accept it. So, the newly turned Christian Anglo-Saxons were encouraged to repress and avoid anything pagan. Here are some 7th century Anglo-Saxon laws I came across to illustrate what I mean. Rule 18. If any make or perform a vow at trees or springs or stones or boundaries or anywhere at all except in the house of God, let him do penance for three years on bread and water. This is sacrilege and diabolical. If any eat or drink there, let him do penance for one year on bread and water. Rule 14. If caught curing a son or daughter on the roof or in an oven, an oven? Penance for seven years. Burn grain where a man has died, penance five years. Rule 2. Eating or drinking in ignorance by a heathen shrine, 40 day fast. That last one's a bit cheeky. 40 days for eating a sani next to a shrine you didn't even know was there? 
These sacred shrines and areas were called Frith Spots. And Frith, by the way, is the name of the rabbit's pagan god in Watership Down. If there's any Watership Down fans out there. There's a very important difference in attitude here, though. Prayers to God for a good and bountiful season ahead is one thing, as we found out last time when we covered Ember Week. But praying directly to the earth and trees and other things in the field, well, that was simply not on. The word Easter comes from the name of the pagan goddess, Eastra, goddess of spring and dawn. There's a lot of myth and superstition surrounding her. She is the first warm spring winds, the birds that return, the trees that bud and call forth leaves and flowers. She is often described with her familiar in the shape of a hair, which suckled at her teat. That last detail sounds a bit like anti-witchy propaganda to me. Anyone pagan must have been a witch, according to many in the church. That said, though, the hare was considered a high-ranking beast. Certainly when we get to Norman times, anyway. It's thought of as one of the royal game animals, which only the king and his cronies could hunt. So perhaps there was some kind of backhanded regard in there, too. Who knows? The thing is, this really is all supposition. A picture built up over the centuries. There is no written material about her. The only written mention of her appears in the Venerable Bede's famous work, the Ecclesiastical History of the English People, written around 730, and he says, Eustamonoth was once called after a goddess named Estra, in whose honour feasts were celebrated. And that's it. Some even think that he made her up too. I'm a bit dubious about that though. He was very anti-pagan, so if anything, you think he'd miss her out and try and cover it up. Easter month, or Easter month, is the Anglo-Saxon word for April. The hair was added retrospectively by German mythologist Jacob Grimm in the 19th century. Apparently, he decided this because it just seemed intuitive. It's worth pointing out at this point that Easter bunnies were not rabbits, but hares. There were no rabbits in Britain until the Romans brought them over and farmed them. They also brought over the brown hare. It's the mountain hare that's our indigenous species. The brown hares escaped, but somehow the rabbits didn't. Cut several centuries into the future, when the Normans came over with their massive rabbit warrens, they loved rabbit and they had to bring them over from Normandy. The first mention of feral rabbits in England is during the reign of Bad King John in the early 13th century. There are foods we associate with Lent and Easter that predate Christianity. Eggs are perhaps the most obvious suspects. Poultry don't lay eggs in the winter time, but when spring returns they are laying again. And so they were a blessed thing, but more on those later. The other pagan food we eat today is the hot cross bun. And now, I'm going to do a little cooking spot to show you how to make them. Let's get the initial stages done. I have in my mixing bowl here 500 grams of strong white bread flour, teaspoon of salt, teaspoon of yeast. Into there goes 60 grams of sugar, teaspoon of mixed spice. Mm -hmm. We have 500 mils of warm milk. We have a beaten egg. And lastly, as a lot of my recipes seem to involve some butter, melted butter. This one's been cooled down a bit. I'm using my trusty KitchenAid. Other food mixers are available. I've had this KitchenAid for about 15 years. And I've never had to do so much as oil it. It's amazing. Time to get mixing now. Okay. 
Okay, that looks like it might be ready. It's all kind of collected onto the hook. It looks nice and smooth. Now, a good way to tell to see if your dough is ready, this is more easy on a regular white loaf because this has got eggs and butter and things which are going to spoil the structure of the gluten. But it should be relatively unsticky. And you should be able to stretch it. I'm going to get the dough out of here, gather it up into a nice neat ball, pop it into an oiled bowl so it doesn't stick, and then leave it in a warm place for a little bit. What I didn't mention before, if you don't have a mixer, don't worry, you can do all this by hand. I used to make bread by hand all the time. I've just gotten a bit lazy in my old age. All you have to do is knead it, push it, stretch it, fold it, however, with a little bit of flour, the least amount of flour possible to stop it sticking, and keep on going till you get to the stretchy, tacky but not sticky state that this dough's in now. It'll probably take about 12, 15 minutes. So just tighten it up. I'm doing that just by folding it in on itself into its own center to make a little ball and I can roll it over. Pop it in my little bowl. Cover that with uh, a wet tea towel. Wait till it doubles in size. It'll take a while. It is enriched, as I keep mentioning. That slows things down a little bit. I reckon it's gonna take an hour or something like that. It's just about an hour and a quarter afterwards. Oh yes, nice and stretchy dough. Excellent, happy with that. So now what I'm gonna do is I need to get all the fruit in there. Now I've got here about 100 grams of dried fruit, raisin, sultanas, currants, and about 30 grams of candied peel. Not everyone likes candied peel. I understand that. You could put in some ginger in there or something, stem ginger, if you don't like it. I'll just miss it out altogether. Don't put in, like I've seen in supermarkets, chocolate. That is not a hot cross bun. Just because it's got a cross on it does not mean it's a hot cross bun. You need dried fruit, not chocolate. Otherwise, buttery is not happy. Anyway, time to get the dough. And what we need to do is knead it. Squidge out the dough and then put the fruit in the middle and then just move the dough into the centre and just keep moving into the centre it eventually needs in. So there's enough dough here to make well between 8 and 12, depending how big you like your hot cross buns really. I mean you could make little mini ones I suppose, but I don't see the point in little mini things like that. It just means I'm going to eat 4 or 5 of them anyway. Who are we kidding? This dough, by the way, can be used to make all sorts of different doughs. If you roll it out into a big rectangle, brush it with melted butter, mix your dried fruit with some brown sugar, spread it out, roll it up, slice it up, you've got probably the best of all the buns, a Chelsea bun. I'll try and crowbar that into a different episode of something eventually, because they really are the best. I have here one of the most useful things you can ever own if you like baking, and that is a dough scraper. It's good for chopping things up, scraping things out, when things are too sticky to use your fingers. And what I'm going to do is, I'm just going to get a little bit of flour on my worktop. A very small amount, we don't need much. Just enough to stop it sticking, because I'm going to be playing about with it now, so it might start sticking. I'm going to be quite precise about this, because I am really, really bad at judging cutting things up into equal sizes you know one with three times as big as another one it's all over the place so i'm just going to weigh this oh it's exactly a kilogram so that's handy if i do eight eight big ones that's 125 grams i'm going to divide this dough 
You don't need to hear this. It's boring. I'll catch you in a little bit. I have divided up my dough into eight equal sized pieces. Now what I need to do is get them nice and round and really tight. If you just put eight blobs on your tray, shove them in the oven, you're not going to get a nice round bun. What you need to do is you need to get the surface all tight and round. And the way you do that, I'm going to try and describe it to you. Put a very, very small amount of flour on your worktop. Very, very slight dusting. I'm going to shake off excess flour from my hand. And then get your dough in front of you. And with your hand, sort of move your hand in so your palm kind of is indented a little bit. And put your hand over the dough. So the dough goes into the indentation in your palm. And then it's just a question of moving the dough round in little circles. Hopefully you can hear that. And if you just keep doing that, nice and fast, you'll get the knack. And, hey, nice little round, perfectly round little ball. Now I've got a baking tray here with a bit of greaseproof paper on it. I'm just scattering over a bit more flour. And as I do each of these little buns, they can sit on the tray. So I'm just going to carry on doing these. If you're really good, you can do this with two hands, do a ball with each hand. So, as I roll these up, let me just tell you a little bit about hot cross buns. Hot cross buns are one of our oldest sort of made foods. Um, they've always been enriched with something, whether it's eggs or milk or butter or whatever, but they go right back to early pagan times. And the cross itself goes back to early pagan times too. It is not a representation of Jesus on the cross. The cross is there because when people made the buns, they would slice a cross in the top, nice and quick, and what that did, it dispelled all the evil spirits that might be in the bread. Now, fast forward a few centuries to Christian times, of course. It's another really good example of how pagan things were, by sleight of hand, swapped for Christian things. The cross then became the cross that Jesus was crucified on. That kind of thing. But lots of superstitions carried over from pagan times to Christian times. There was one thing... If you steeped your hot cross bun in some warm water and drew off that warm water, give it to a, an invalid, it had restorative powers, sort of supernatural powers, and it would bring them back to health. People would also hang up their hot cross buns from the rafters to ward away evil spirits. And people believed that the hot cross bun would never go mouldy or go stale. Well, in my house, they never go mouldy or stale. But that's because I've filled my face with them usually. Once I've been yakking, I've pretty much done these. That's not bad. As with bread making, you raise your dough the first time, and then you do it again. This won't take 90 minutes like the first rising. It'll probably be more like, I don't know, 25 minutes. Now, I covered it with some cling film in a bowl before. Can't do that now, because they're all laid out on a tray. So there's a couple of things that you can do. One way of doing it is to get a damp tea towel and lay that over. But sometimes that stops it from rising properly. So what I do is I get a, from a supermarket, a BFL, that's a bag for life. Turn in the outside, so it's like a turn up on some trousers. And you can turn it over and just sit the bag over the tray. Hey presto. A good old BFL is the way forward. That's what I'm going to do now. So um, yeah, we'll come back in 20, 25 minutes.
Okay, right, let's have a little look at these. Okay, they're looking nice and squidgy and big. Now, when I rolled them, some of the raisins have ended up kind of sticking out. It's a good idea at this point to pick them off and pop them underneath because they're just going to burn. Now, when it comes to baking bread, there's all sorts of stuff that people write in their books, like putting the oven on full blast, putting a tray of boiling water in, you open it up, get third degree burn, steam burns to your face, then you can pop it in. A lot of messing about. I can't be bothered with any of that kind of nonsense. What I do is I put my bread into a cold oven, set it to the temperature, and just add an extra five minutes to the time. The slow warming up kind of gives the yeast a bit of a, a kickstart, and you get something extra fluffy. And I got that tip from Virginia Woolf. Who knew? She was an amazing baker. She did a particularly good cottage loaf. So there you go. Hopefully that might come up in a pub quiz or something. Useful. I have in my hand a serrated knife and rather than making a, a cross with rather than making a cross with some flour water paste, I'm gonna go and do a proper cross with a sharp knife. So I can bless the bread, get rid of any evil spirits. I hate even there's evil spirits hanging around bagging pans or whatever they do. So I'm gonna make a cross on each one. You need a really sharp knife. If you've got a knife sharpener, give it a good going over. And all you have to do is just hold each bun very gently with your fingertips. And then with the other hand of the knife, give it a good slice. Of course, cutting across makes them open up a little bit as they bake. Which I think is a real reason why people do it, because it cuts down the cooking time. The other important thing is to do it in one swift stroke. Don't be sawing it back and forth. You're just going to knock all the air out of the dough. Just one nice, long, but light, and make your cut. We're going in, cold oven, turn it to 200 degrees, there we go, and set a timer for 25 minutes. Beep, 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 beep. 10 minutes before they're ready, I'm going to make a nice glaze to brush over them so we've got a nice sticky bun. All the recipes from the whole of this podcast series, including this one, is on my blog, BritishFoodHistory.com. Just go to the little search bar search for hot cross buns or whatever and you shall find them with helpful pictures so we're getting towards the end of cooking four minutes or something like that to go so what i've got here is i've got equal amounts sugar and water and i'm gonna get dissolving it on the hob dissolving it slowly just whilst it's warm and then once all the sugar's dissolved i can turn the heat up turn the heat up before it's dissolved it's just gonna burn so there we go if you're not sure if it's dissolved, by the way, just press the wooden spoon or whatever you're using down on the bottom of the pan. If it crunches, it's not quite dissolved. You hear them crunches? Not dissolved. Even though it looks dissolved. Alrighty. Dissolved now, though. So now, stop mixing. And just let it come to a nice simmer. And we don't want to put anything in there like a spoon to mix it because it drops the temperature and you end up crystallising the sugar. Give it a little swirl maybe. Pick it up by the handle and swirl it. But don't put anything there and mix it from now on. And when it looks syrupy, just take off the heat. The alarm has gone off. Right, it smells delish in here. When you're making any kind of bread product and you want it to be really fluffy, you add milk rather than just plain old water. And if you want it to be extra fluffy, what you need to do is you need to 
take it out, pop it on your rack, and then throw very quickly a couple of tea towels over it. So that generates steam, and that stops a proper crust forming. All right, we don't want a crust, we want nice pillowy buns. Let's have a look. Oh, they're looking good. They're looking nice and golden brown. Oh, clatter, clatter, as quick as you can. Get a couple of tea towels over there. Meanwhile, over here, bubbling away is my syrup. That's gonna take a few more minutes. I have my trusty pastry brush, which I'm gonna paint the syrup on with. I turn the oven off now. Hooray. There we go. Okay, this is looking nice and syrupy. Still very liquid, but I can see just by swirling it, it's kind of sticking to the edges of the pan a little bit in a satisfying way, as syrups do. Remove our tea towel. Yes, they look nice now. So I'm just gonna very quickly paint my buns, as it were. Really get good coverage. What I do is I do a quick once over, so they all get some. And then if there's any left, which there usually is, do a little second coat. Oh, sticky buns. They're the best. They're nice and warm now. Let's give them a go. I've opened it up. It's all quite nice. Soft. Get a bit of butter. Oh, excellent, excellent. Let's give it a go. Mm. Oh, that's really nice. I'm not just saying that. Oh. I only make these once a year. I can see why the supermarkets have them all year round. If bread was drugs, it would be a hot cross bun. Have a go at making them, folks. Honestly, they bear no resemblance to the ones that you buy in the supermarket. Oh. Right. Anyway, I'm going to eat the rest of this. See you. The Easter egg hunt goes back many centuries. Children were sent out, basket in hand, to collect, i.e. steal, the eggs of ground-nesting birds like the plover and the lapwing. Now, they could have eaten the eggs from their own geese and ducks, of course, but they needed those eggs to hatch. Over winter, almost all of the animals will have been slaughtered and eaten, leaving the bare minimum to populate the New Year's livestock. This meant that every egg counted. Over time, as poultry farming became more efficient, birds would be laying quite happily in the winter and early springtime. But going a-hunting for eggs is fun, and so the hunt remained, but with boiled hen and duck eggs, planted by parents for children to discover. Eggs were prized, but off-limit to those following Lent, so they were stored, saved, painted up, and arranged on tables in parish churches all over the country. Eggs were symbolic not of just spring, but of the miracle of life, life that hatched seemingly for something that appears totally lifeless. The painted eggs were displayed in abundance. Edward I, the Hammer of the Scots, his housekeeping records mention 18 pence being spent on 450 eggs to be boiled and dyed or covered with gold leaf to the royal household. People really had to do each other, making egg decoration rather a competitive affair. All sorts were added, gold leaf, expensive dyes, precious stones. This eventually led us to the production of the garish and crazily expensive Fabergé egg. The most expensive being the winter egg, which was made in 1913 and was sold in 2003 for a whopping 
9.6 million US dollars. Now I've seen that egg, and I can tell you folks, money does not buy taste. For the coronation of Pope Clement VI in the mid-14th century, which was straight after Lent, 3,250 eggs were ordered to make 50,000 tarts. One wonders how many proles and peasants had to do without just to provide Clement with his splendiferous coronation dinner. The first chocolate eggs, by the way, were solid and were made by French and German chocolatiers in the early 19th century. Cadbury's started making hollow ones in the 1870s, but they were not a hit at first because the chocolate was so difficult to work with that the result was rather expensive. Eventually, their chocolate boffins came up with a chocolate recipe that made chocolate that was easy to pour when warm, yet brittle and shiny when cool. Then, in 1905, the sales really went kaboom when they started making Easter eggs with their new dairy milk chocolate. This sealed the chocky eggs' fate as the must-have Easter treat. Now, cooking with chocolate, and chocolatey things in general, is a bit of a gap in my own food knowledge, because I actually have an intolerance to it. It's a cross I have to bear. But I went to speak to Isabel Cars, Manchester's only bean-to-bar chocolatier, at her shop and factory, Dormouse Chocolates, in Deansgate, Manchester, to find out more. We discussed Easter eggs and chocolate, and I got to see the process of chocolate making for myself. There can't be very many bean-to-bar places in the northwest. No, we're the only one in Manchester. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you can count on one hand how many there are in the northwest. Mm-hmm. And in the UK, I think at the moment there's about 35 or 40 of us. So it's quite a specialist, quite small industry. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's it's we we all, it's it's really nice actually. We're all like really good friends, and we all get on really well, and we all kind of help each other out and give each other advice. So it's a nice little community. Um, but yeah, there isn't many of us. And I think worldwide, there's probably under a thousand. Oh, really? Yeah. So I guess 99% of the chocolate that we're, we're eating is not coming from artisan places. It's being churned out by yes. big factories. Yeah, yeah. Generally speaking, it's made on a giant production line uh-huh. in machines that wouldn't fit into this room. Generally speaking, the majority of chocolate is made, I think... I can't remember the exact amount, but there's a huge proportion is made by one company mm-hmm. called Calibo. So if you're buying anything that's labelled Finest Belgian or anything like that, it's generally Calibo or Belcalade. Really massive industrial chocolate mm-hmm. made by the ton rather than... Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Because um, we're sat in Dormouth Chocolates right now and I can see a production line in here <laughs> and it's very small, but is it essentially... Uh, a mini version of what you're going to get in a big factory? Yeah, pretty much. Um, it's a very much scaled back, long, much longer process. The principle is the same. You roast cocoa beans, you remove the husk, mm-hmm. you grind them down with a bit of sugar and a bit of cocoa butter, right. and you end up with chocolate. Okay. Um, my process takes about a month, and big chocolate takes about a day. So, yeah, it's a completely different... So it takes a month for you to get from... A bean. a bean to a finished yes. product that you're selling. Yeah. Wowzers. <laughs> and most of that is just sort of waiting around for things to happen. It's not right, like okay. all hands on. Yes, you're not sat churning something for yeah. two, <laughs> two weeks at a time. No. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll, um, we'll check those bits out in a bit. But one thing that I wanted to uh, ask you about is how you got into making chocolate in the first place. Is this something you did 
when you left school and you've been born to do it? Um, no, it was a bit of an accident, really. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was studying, I took a Christmas temp job at a well-known high street chocolate shop mm-hmm. um, and ended up staying with them after Christmas and working with them full time, then hosting events with them. And do, they um, they do like an internal training thing called a chocolate diploma, which is uh-huh. really great fun. So I started doing that and then ended up moving into their sort of production side of the business. I was really, really lucky. The training that I got, you just couldn't buy or get anywhere. So yeah, I spent a very long summer training in their production kitchen mm-hmm. and then spent a good couple of years making chocolate with them and traveling all over the UK making chocolate in the stores and doing lots of fun things. Decided eventually that all the traveling wasn't really for me and bought a tiny grinder for my home kitchen. Right. Started playing around at home and haven't stopped since. Excellent. So I don't eat very much chocolate. I'm a little bit allergic to it, so it's a bit of a gap in my food knowledge. Um, If I had two bars of chocolate in front of me, one of high-quality artisan chocolate and just a regular bar of chocolate, could I tell the difference? Yeah, yeah. So the the first thing to do is look at the price. If Mm -hmm. a bar of chocolate costs less than a a few pounds, there's generally going to be someone losing out in the supply chain, and you can guarantee it isn't the person that made it. Sure. So a good high quality bar of chocolate where the producer actually you know knows the farmer or cares about the farmer and cares about transparency in their supply mm-hmm. chain is obviously going to cost that a little bit more then the second thing to do is flip over the bar and look at the ingredients an industrially made bar of chocolate that's highly processed and not as high quality will have lots of lots of sugar mm-hmm. it will probably have some kind of emulsifier generally soy or lecithin um, yes, it's always soy in there, isn't yeah. it? Every time, so that's what it's there for. Yeah, okay. it emulsifies the chocolate. It also means that it's um, it flows more freely, so it, mm-hmm. it runs through industrial machines a lot more easily. If you were so, with... it's only there because of industrial. Yes, yeah. There's sort of no sized uh, chocolate making. That's the only reason it's there. Yeah, there's no right. actual need for it to be there. I mean, if you're working on a small scale, you don't need it to be in right, the chocolate. Okay. Um, yeah. yeah, it's just there to make things easier. And chocolate makers are known for making lives hard for themselves, so <laughs> we don't put the soya in because, mm-hmm. yeah, you don't need it. There also, yeah, there'll be a lot, lot more sugar. There'll be less traceability on the ingredients. There'll tra- generally be some kind of e number that you don't recognise. Mm-hmm. Um, probably flavourings. Vanilla is the most common. It's kind of used to cover up and mask the flavour of underdeveloped beans or mouldy beans or things that you don't necessarily okay. want to taste in the chocolate. Mm-hmm. Vanilla is nice for sort of masking all of that. Covers a multitude of sin. Yes. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Another thing you'll notice is with a good quality craft chocolate, not only will it say the country that the beans were grown in, but generally it'll tell you the area that the beans were grown in or the farm that the beans were grown on. Right. It'll tell you the varietal of cocoa bean. It'll go into so much information that you just don't see on industrial chocolate. I mean, you, I've noticed now in supermarkets that sort of have single origin chocolate bars, and it'll just say Peru or Ghana, but it won't give you any more information than that. Mm-hmm. Where the craft chocolate bar will know down to the farm where the beans have come mm-hmm. from, and generally, a lot of us will know the farmers. So I was just about to ask that: so did you actually get to communicate with the farmers themselves and go and visit? 
Yeah, yeah, we um we have we have a few different sourcing models at Dormouse. We'll either buy direct from the farm, um, for our Filipino bar, which um we have like a really lovely relationship with the mm-hmm. farm in the Philippines, or we'll buy through um companies like Uncommon Cacao who practice this really great transparent trade model so although we're not buying direct from the farmers we know exactly where the money's mm-hmm, going mm-hmm. and exactly who's growing the beans last year i was really lucky i got to go out to peru to visit a few farms oh, wow. um, which was just the most incredible experience very very lucky so that's the packet yes but if we don't have a packet uh, faced with two bars of chocolate is there anything you can do just by by looking um, I mean, most chocolate kind of looks fairly similar, mm-hmm. generally a shade of brown. Sure. Where, taste-wise, there's so much that you'll be able to taste mm-hmm. the difference. You, yeah, if you, even just smelling the chocolate, uh, lower quality, industrially made chocolate will just smell of sweets and vanilla. Yes. Whereas the aroma of a really good bar of chocolate, it could smell of anything like spices or quite floral or citrusy mm-hmm. or fruits. It'll it'd be like a f- sort of smelling a really lovely coffee. You'll okay. get all these different flavour notes coming through yeah. as soon as you start to smell the chocolates. Yeah, because I just noticed down here that you've got a, a flavour wheel, which yes. I'm assuming you use when people come in and yes. try the chocolate to kind of help them find their adjectives to describe yeah. it. So it's, I mean, that's a quite a list there it's a list as big as you'd associate with wine or something oh yeah in fact you get more flavor notes in chocolate than you do in wine oh really yeah it's one of the most complex foodstuffs out there um all the different flavor notes and there's so and there's so many different ways of making chocolate so you mm-hmm. get so many different things that you can explore when you're mm-hmm. sort of tasting chocolates yeah yeah so there's what there's seven or eight different categories floral dairy spicy nutty Roasted, sweet, earthy, and fruity. Yes, and they're just <clears> the good ones. And they're just the good ones. <laughs> <laughs> indeed. Yeah. So it's funny because now you've now there is a fruity category. Going back yes. to when I did eat chocolate, it's like sometimes you do get a fruity one, don't you? Yeah, especially sort of. I'd say the the famously the most fruity chocolates from Madagascar. Okay. This beautiful sort of red fruits notes that you get in um, Madagascar. Oh, it's like like cherries and cherries, berries, sometimes slightly citrusy, sort of oranges. Depends on where the beans have been grown in Madagascar Mm. and also what the chocolate maker has done to them. Mm -hmm. Um, So different roast profiles and different grinds and different recipes will bring out different flavor elements. Sure. You were saying that the kind of the raw ripe berry has kind of a tropical fruit yeah. flavors and smells does that carry on through or is the process so long and there's so many steps that ends up being turned into other i don't know aroma chemicals or something the um the aromas in and the tastes in the fruits do kind of act as sort of a precursor for the flavors that you get in the bean so during the fermentation process the acids and flavor compounds in the fruit permeate into the bean okay so tasting the pulp of the cacao oh right because the bean the fruit isn't the same as the bean is it right of course yeah so it's the seeds yeah and so yeah when you taste the fruit you can kind of get an inkling of what Mm -hmm. you might taste Mm -hmm. further down the line so when i was in peru we went to a farm um who i can't remember the exact number of varietals of cacao that they grew but they grew a lot of different varietals and I think we tasted about 10 different varietals mm. all grown on one farm mm-hmm. 
and the fruits tasted different in each one. Oh, okay. And then we tasted the chocolate that was made with the beans from each fruit. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And again, different flavor notes in each chocolate. So even on the same farm, you'll get different varietals of cacao. Yeah, yeah. And each one will have its own unique flavor. When you go to a farm, I'm just trying to picture what one of these farms actually looks like. What what does a a cacao plant look like? I'm, I'm kind of... Imagining a kind of palm tree kind of yeah, thing. kind of similar. Right. It's um yeah, I'd say they they don't grow ver- in when they're be- being cultivated. They don't grow very sort of tall, maybe mm-hmm. ten, twelve feet, and they're quite wide with big sort of yeah, almost palmy kind of mm-hmm. leaves so um coming off them. And interestingly, the fruit grows along the trunk. So normally, when you see a fruit tree, you get the yeah, fruit yeah, at the ends of the, the branches. Yeah, yeah. But cacao is one of the only fruits that grows along the trunk rather okay. than at the ends oh, of the odd. branches. Right. It's an odd little fruit. <laughs> <laughs> um, so going back to our um, high quality, low quality <laughs> chocolate chat, I want to ask about um, cocoa solids because I reckon most people reckon a measure of how good a chocolate yes. is is the proportion of cocoa solids. Yeah. I guess to some extent that's not necessarily true if they're not good quality solids in the first place. Yeah. Um, yeah, you kind of hit the nail on the head there. Mm. You've got to have good quality cacao as the base before you get a good flavour, and the percentage won't really have that much of a bearing on that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's more for us. It's more about the place that the beans have been grown, the varietal that they are, and how they've been processed. Mm-hmm. So you can taste two bars of chocolate that are both say seventy percent. One's from Guatemala. One's from the Philippines flavor wise they will be completely different mm-hmm. and that isn't anything to do with the percentage it's literally all about the beans um there's some some chocolate that i've tried where it's like 90 95 percent and mm-hmm. you wouldn't think it was a high percentage because the beans are really lovely and naturally sweet so it tastes right because sort of i always imagine these 99 percent chocolate i mean that's just too too much of a good thing i can't <laughs> very pleasant sweet but i, I I suppose it's like when you have a well-made coffee, when people make coffees incorrectly, it's a little bit too hot and it goes very bitter. Yeah. And it's a similar thing with the Yeah, chocolate. absolutely. If, if the beans are treated well, then you'll get good flavour from them. So it's them. basically attention to detail, which yeah. you can't do in a great big factory. Exactly. You have to mask it. Yes. other things. Okay, I get you. All right, so we're doing a podcast about Lent. And in the past, a very important part of Lent was collecting eggs. Yes. We still collect eggs now at Easter time. Uh, but in the form of chalky eggs. Yes, best <laughs> kind of egg. <laughs> <laughs> well, indeed. Um, so Easter must be a really busy time for you. The busiest time of year? Not quite the busiest. We have sort of the three main chocolate holidays, if you like, are Christmas, Easter and Valentine's Day. So, yeah, they kind of all kind of run along from each other. So that's trial by ordeal, isn't it? It is. And then come <laughs> summer, we just generally find chocolate makers passed out somewhere in a heap, um, okay. <laughs> recovering. <laughs> So what are the most popular chocolates that you sell around Easter time? Is it physically eggs or do people associate Easter more with chocolate than with eggs these days? No, it's definitely eggs. Yeah, yeah people love still the um, the Easter egg. It's a, it's a traditional kind of mm-hmm. symbol of Easter, isn't it? That you get the chocolate egg. Chocolate tastes nicer when it's an egg form. It does. It does. It? Is, that, yeah. is it because it's thin and dissolves or is it just because it spe- looks different and special? I think- I think it's because it's thinner and because it's curved, so it sits in your mouth and it does. melts. It fits into the roof of yeah. your mouth, doesn't it? The way it melts is just really nice. Yeah, yeah. 
Yes, I, th I think it's to do with the shape and the, the weight. And yeah, if it's slightly thinner, although ours, our Easter egg's quite thick. Mm -hmm. um, traditionally, you make an Easter egg as thin as possible and as big as possible, so it looks like you're getting loads of chocolate mm -hmm. with the least amount of chocolate possible. Indeed. Um, whereas, because I like things to be a bit more indulgent, I'll make the eggs quite thick. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, you might not have the thinness of the melting, but you still get the nice curve. Yeah, I really remember as a kid eating chocolate and that kind of ritual where you'd hold the chocolate and kind of break it into yeah. little bits or you'd bend it off because you were holding the chocolate egg for so long it started to melt in your hands. <laughs> yeah, and you'd end up covered in chocolates. Covered in chocolate. Oh, I miss chocolate. I can eat white chocolate. Do you sell much white chocolate? Yeah, actually one of our most popular bars has white chocolate. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that's good to it's, know. Um, made with caramelised milk powder, so we call it the toasted white. Ah, okay. So it's kind of caramelly and lovely and sweet. Because it gets a bit poo-pooed, doesn't it, white chocolate? Some it people does. don't even count it as chocolate, because yeah. I guess it doesn't have the cocoa solids in. Well, if you make good quality white chocolate, you're using cocoa butter, which is naturally about 54% of the cocoa bean is cocoa butter. So when you grind up the beans... Mm put them in a hydraulic press, it squeezes out the cocoa butter a bit like making olive oil. So you're okay. left with cocoa powder and cocoa butter as the two sort of constituent parts. And the cocoa butter is what you use to make the white chocolate. Mm -hmm. So our toasted white is made using a Madagascan cocoa butter. And another reason that a lot of people kind of poo-poo white chocolate is that the cocoa butter generally has gone through what we call a deodorizing process, mm. which bleaches out all the nice flavors. Right. Um, so the white chocolate that we make hasn't gone through that process, so you retain a lot more flavour of the bean, you get this lovely fruitiness from the Madagascan cocoa, and then you get this lovely caramelliness from the toasted milk powder. All oh, right, oh, that sounds excellent. It oh. was, um, two years ago, it was the only white chocolate in the world to be awarded gold at the Academy of Chocolate Awards. Oh, wow. Uh, so, so, yes, I yeah. can see all your awards <laughs> on, the, on the wall. It's amazing. Got to show off a little bit, so... <laughs> Easter eggs have been around for centuries. Chocky Easter eggs, relatively recent thing. Uh, do you know much about the history of Easter eggs and who? Um, I don't know them? a huge amount, to be honest. Right. It's, it's a bit of a gap in my knowledge, but I believe you've done a bit of research and yeah, can tell look. us a little bit. <clears throat> well, yes, well, the first chocolate eggs were solid chocolate. Yes. They weren't the nice chocolate shells. Um, and they were made in France and Germany mid-19th century but what I want to ask you about really was they had a problem they wanted to make nice thin uh, shelled eggs mm -hmm. but it wasn't possible Cadbury's came up with a solution to that problem around 1900 I think um, but I can't find anything about the process what it was that they managed to do differently to the chocolate engine that that process where suddenly they, could, they couldn't make something thin and then suddenly yeah. they could. Do you know anything about that? I think sort of the main thing in that sort of time period are the advances in chocolate making in general. Mm. So you have the invention of the conch by Rudolf Lintz and that really revolutionised chocolate just in general everywhere. So before the invention of the conch you found that chocolate is... It's a very gritty, almost cake-like substance yes. that's pressed into moulds. Mm -hmm. And then, um, as all the best things are, this was an accidental invention, mm -hmm. the Lint family were trying to figure out how to make chocolate smoother and smoother, and mm -hmm. they were putting the chocolate into these mixing machines, and someone forgot to turn one off. 
overnight. Okay. Um, came in the next day and thought that they'd ruined a whole batch of chocolate. Everyone was up in arms, and then they tasted it. And all of a sudden, what had been this very gritty, very bitty um, thing became this smooth, fluid, lovely, melt-in-the-mouth product. And they discovered that the grinding and conching process, which is essentially refining down the particle size of the bean until it is undetectable on the tongue, mm-hmm. and release, which releases all the cocoa butter, that's what makes the chocolate uh, fluid. Okay. And from there, you go on to... Te- um, to uh, to figure out that you need to temper the chocolate, which is the process of heating right. and cooling. I was going to ask about tempering chocolate. Yes. Because this is something I've never done. I do know it makes the chocolate shiny. Yes. That's all I know. So <laughs> it's a very, very simple process that gets blown out of proportion by okay. everyone. Right. All it is is heating the chocolate and then cooling it back down. And there's a few different ways that you can do that. You can either pour it out onto a marble slab, which is what you see on sort of telly. Yes, that's what I think about when I think about temperature chocolate, yeah. And it's just a case of moving the chocolate around until it cools down to about 29 degrees and then heating it up ever so slightly Mm -hmm. to reach 31 degrees. So that's the magic point at which all the cocoa butter crystals are in the right formation. And that's it. Oh, okay. That's, That's what gives you the nice shine. It makes the chocolate stable. Mm-hmm. Um, so it shocks it into being stable. Or something. Yeah, right, yeah. Okay. So it basically the cocoa butter crystals, which are what what solidify, mm-hmm. will they'll solidify in one of six different ways. So six different formations. Uh-huh. And what you're looking for is type five, which is a nice right. solid block, kind of like Lego. And it'll build on itself mm-hmm. and give you a nice stable solid structure. And, and that's when you kind of when you buy a nice chocolate bar it's quite thin and it really snaps yes you don't get that well i won't mention any high street brands but you don't get a snap <laughs> no you get a thunk, thunk kind of noise don't you yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's because in certain high street brands the cocoa butter is extracted and sold on to the cosmetics industry for a lot of money and replaced with much cheaper vegetable fats ah, so which you, you can't temper right so, so that's, that's when palm oil yeah. Rears its ugly head and ends yes. up in cheaper yeah. chocolates and other confectionery. Right, okay. Because it's really important, isn't it? Because people see a chocolate bar that's quite expensive. Yes. And, you know, not everyone has spare money and that's fine. But yeah. Totally. But what it's disappointing, I suppose, when people feel like they're being essentially ripped off because someone's making loads of money. When mm-hmm. something's expensive because it's a laborious process, a huge attention to detail, you really are getting value for money oh there. yeah definitely it's a completely different it's com- thing. yeah completely different I and mean, you're paying not only for the quality of the bean and the quality of the product and to not have lots of junk thrown into it but you're also paying for the farmers yeah. to receive a fair wage so you get what you pay for plus yes. a little bit of yeah. smug peace of mind that you do yes good. absolutely <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know that no child has suffered yes. for your bar of chocolate which yeah, indeed. you know is yeah. it's becoming more and more apparent that that's what's happening in the supply chain so yes well just i mean the great thing about internet and mobile communication has made the world smaller but it's also showing that yeah it's shown an ugly light on a lot yeah, of things yeah. yes Which is, i mean it's good it's <laughs> yeah. not good but it's good that we try slow. Yeah. it's a bit slow but we're slowly chipping away at that i think indeed yeah and the more we talk about it the more people know about it the you know the better things are going to get so mm. 
let's get back to Easter eggs. Um, so we've tempered the chocolate. Yeah. Um, what else is it? Uh, is there a, see, these are the other things I have visions of people having to do. You've got your chocolate and then you're just essentially like swirling chocolate around in a cup. Is it quite hard to do making a... Yeah, it's one of my least favourite things to do when it's making chocolate, to be honest. It is, it's really stressful. There are a couple of different ways that you can do, you can make an Easter egg. The first and probably the easiest thing you can do is temper the chocolate, pour it into the mould, which Mm -hmm. is sort of a half egg, Mm -hmm. fill the mould up to the top, Mm -hmm. let it sit for a couple of minutes so it starts to set on the outside, and then pour out the excess Mm -hmm. and scrape it off, repeat and stick the two pieces of egg together. Okay. And that's probably the easiest way to do it. Mm-hmm. Or you can buy moulds where you have the two halves of the egg stuck together. Mm-hmm. So you pour in whatever weight of chocolate you need, stick the two halves of the mould together, and then either swirl it by hand, mm-hmm. which takes a long time of, sort of literally just standing and twirling and hoping that nothing falls out and that you don't drop the mould. Mm-hmm. Or you can buy machines that do that for you, which is obviously where you kind of heading into the more sort of industrial route. Um, and where do you sit on that scale? Are you very much doing it by hand? Yes. yes. Yeah, unfortunately, I don't have any lovely machines that do it for me. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you make a lot of mistakes? Is it quite a... I imagine it would be very difficult. Yeah. Oh, it requires a bit of a knack, so it would require yeah. a lot of practice. The first few that I make every year, because obviously we're not making Easter eggs all year, we're making them for a month of the year. Mm. So the first few that I make every year generally get melted back down and made again. They're either too thick or they're off balance or I've missed a bit or something's gone wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it, it does take a bit of sort of practice to get back into the neck every year. And can you reuse the chocolate that yeah, didn't yeah. work? You can just melt that down, retemper yeah. it or whatever. Yeah, just melt it down, retemper it. That's the great thing about chocolate is there's virtually no waste. Um, mm. Anything that is left over at the end of the molding or anything that comes out of temper when it's been molding or anything that we've done wrong we can just melt down right oh that's good to know because it's, it's depressing how much food waste there is in the food oh, industry so depressing. oh depressing yeah no, we <laughs> virtually we waste virtually nothing we're right yeah very conscious of that um yeah we're really lucky chocolate is yeah it's yeah you don't get much wastage with chocolates <laughs> and can anything I, that does get, go sort of wrong gets eaten so <laughs> <laughs> now you see when i first started out in the food industry myself yeah if i did a market it'd be Food left over in the first few months, it was great. <laughs> and then you get custard sick of tarts it. all weekend. <laughs> <laughs> then you put on a stone and a half, and you'd be like, "You're not doing Fortunately, you have to throw it away, which is just so depressing. Anyway, um, could I see one of your chocolate moulds, chocolate egg moulds? Yeah, sure. Um, bear with me. It's not been polished yet, so it's oh, looking sorry. a bit grubby. <laughs> so, yeah, you pour the chocolate in. You polish it up so it's nice and shiny, so mm-hmm. you get a nice clean transfer. Pour the chocolate in and then line that up. Yep. And literally, see, this is where it all goes wrong. Up and down right. and round to the side. So if you take your eye off the ball, you're wearing three chocolate Easter yes. eggs, basically. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> These are really nice moulds. Yeah. Where do you get this kind of thing from? Are they, are they made just for you? Have you 
Oh, I wish. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, cost, custom molds are very, very expensive. Right, okay. um, these I found on the internet, mm-hmm. um, and they don't—they're not made anymore. So they're, yeah, they're very precious. Right. Okay. And um, this particular one, it's got sort of a diamond pattern. Yeah, they're, it's, they're very pretty. Yeah. Yeah, like little Faberge eggs or something. Yes. Yeah. What kind of chocolate really sells well at Easter? Do you, do you make lots of different eggs yeah. and different chocolates? Yeah. Or you have so. To do one or two. Um, generally the toasted white mm-hmm. um, and then whatever milk chocolate I'm kind of enjoy- like yeah it depends sort of one milk and one dark um, d- it depends on what origin I've got lots and lots of chocolate of or what's tasting mm-hmm. really good and I try and use a different origin every year so that people who come back get something different every time sure yes because it's it's like making wine or something you're gonna have different what's well, vintages with wine yes. but you're gonna have different varieties yeah, different varieties, different origins, different harvests taste different. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want to get really geeky, different fermentation styles taste different. I've been working with the farm that we buy beans from in the Philippines on a project involving lots of different fermentation styles. Mm-hmm. Um, literally just sort of tweaks to the process for each one. So one tiny little change and a completely different flavour of chocolate at the end. Um, so yeah, that's something we've been working on for the past year and a half, which has been really, really geeky, but really interesting. It's good that you can change it because it can get yeah. a little bit uh, monotonous having to do the same thing all the time because people are expecting the same every yeah. time, but people are expecting things to be different. It's just so much better, isn't it? Having, oh yeah. 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 It's the beauty of the type of chocolate we make. Yeah. E- even batch to batch, there's going, going to be something different and mm. so many things that we can change. So in the roasting and the recipes, um, to give you a completely different flavour. Yeah, and you're just completely in control of your own business, of course. If you yeah. want to move the goalposts a little bit, you can move them. Yes, yeah. That's the great thing. You don't feel hemmed, hemmed in, do you? No, yeah. no, it's great. We can, yeah, if we want to sort of buy a new bean from a different origin mm. or try doing something different, then we can. Um, yeah, a lot of what I do is quite experimental. Um, we do like a monthly subscription where you buy however many months you want and you get a different bar every month. Mm-hmm. Um, that's been going for three years now without a repeat of um all oh, right okay so, that's yeah. that's great it's yeah it's, it's it's my kind of creative outlet and yeah but yeah. yeah a lot i mean it's a great thing about running your own business if you feel like trying something new you can just give it a go and see what happens mm-hmm. so the toasted white was one of those classic examples where it's like what happened if i did this mm-hmm. And now I can't make enough of it. <laughs> Created a monster. Yes, very much so. <laughs> Thank you very much for spending some time having a chat with us today. It's been so interesting. Oh, and I'm so glad. Thanks for coming. Thank you very much. So that wraps up the Pagan episode. A massive thanks to Isabel for sparing the time to have that great chat with me. Links to her website, as well as my hot cross bun recipe, can be found at britishfoodhistory.com. Just click on the Lent podcast tab. There, you can find information about loads of other things that crop up in the series. But what have we learnt this week? Well, paganism is basically all the fun bits of Easter. Bunnies, eggs and hot cross buns. Its symbolism is still evocative and intuitive today. Christianity is the abstract, sombre and restrained side. They are the yin and yang, I suppose. Right, time to sign off. Thanks so much for listening this week. If you've got any comments, questions or queries, please find me on Twitter at Neil Buttery or email me at neil at britishfoodhistory.com and I'm now on Instagram. Just find me at doctor, that's D-R underscore Neil underscore Buttery 
so there are no excuses not to get involved. Next week, we're going to look a little bit more at the ways Lent got dumbed down. Now I'll be having a look at the natural history and ecology of Lent. The producer for this series is Bina Katani, and it's a Sonder Radio production. Thank you.